Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Birth Lounge Podcast. You guys, I have to be honest with you. One of the pieces of being your childbirth educator that I find the most difficult is sharing about the pieces of the hospital system that aren't so great. And I struggle with sharing it with you because I never, ever want to scare you about birth. And I never want you to go into the hospital system feeling fearful or feeling like you are having to go in set up to fight for yourself. But what I will say is, as your childbirth educator, I would not be doing my due diligence and I wouldn't be doing any justice to you if I only told you about the rosy pieces of birth. If I only talked about sunshine and rainbows and butterflies. If everything was always just beautiful on this side of the street. I wouldn't be doing you any good. Matter of fact, I would be doing you just the same as hospital childbirth education. They never want to tell you how do you get yourself out of situations that you didn't find yourself in. They never want to discuss how to have hard conversations with your provider. They never want to share with you how the hospital system may not be aligned with your birth goals necessarily and how do you navigate the hospital system to have your birth goals still met even though the hospital system may not be used to the request that you are asking for. So today's episode is a little bit of a funky title because I know that this title feels like this episode is going to be about birth control like the IUD or the pill or um, the, the you know that implant that goes in your arm but it is not. Today I have the distinct pleasure of getting to sit down with Allison Yarrow who is an award-winning journalist, speaker, and the author of Birth Control, The Insidious Power of Men Over Motherhood. Allie has written about health, politics, and gender for many publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vox, Insider, USA Today, Time, and Newsweek. 
She was a National Magazine Award finalist, a TED resident, an Aspen Ideas Festival fellow, and a grantee of the International Women's Media Foundation. She produces the award-winning Vice News documentary, Misconception, and gave a TED Talk called What to Expect Post-Expecting. Allie and I are diving into what happens when hospital culture is rooted in tradition and not evidence. What happens when your doctor says, well, we have to do it this way because we've always done it this way, even when the data and the science shows that maybe the way we've always done it isn't the best. We're going to dive into how does it impact your care when incentives within the hospital system are set up to reward providers for doing expensive surgeries and protocols, but there's no incentive for supporting unmedicated biological labor. There is incentives to rush people through the hospital system to get that bed turned over for a new birthing person, but there's no incentive in letting the natural birth process take its own course and let it do its thing. What happens when a system that is designed to be for profit is faced with the decision of profits or people? And they can only choose one. I think you and I know that they will always choose profits over people. And so Allie and I today are going to be telling you how you can have an amazing birth experience and learn how to navigate this insidious hospital system in the USA. This is not to say that your doctor or doctors are bad. Matter of fact, Allie and I speak directly to that in this episode. There are amazing doctors within a broken healthcare system, and at the end of the day, it is going to produce broken medicine and broken results. Without further ado, Allie, Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you. This topic is one that I think you have to be very brave to talk about it online because people will really come for you. And there's a lot of people that get really, really angry and like, you know, dare I say pissed off when we start to talk about the history of obstetrics and how motherhood has unfolded in America and kind of where we've come from and what we've become and how in the world did things get so off course? And I'm sure there are people out there who would argue that this is not off course. This is right along, you know, whatever they have in mind for themselves. But I think a large majority of us realize we've gotten very far away from motherhood and the village, the community, the support. Women do life alone in a lot of aspects. And your book lays out exactly how the maternity care system has not only done this to women, but has enabled other people to also take advantage of women and mothers along the entire spectrum of motherhood. I'm super, super excited to talk about this with you today. Before we dive into your book, I'd love to know about your background. Tell us why this topic, how did this book come to your heart? So my background is as a journalist. I've been a journalist for almost 20 years, which is crazy to say out loud. I'm a naturally curious person. I'm a journalist by profession, but I'm also one by disposition and personality. I just need to know about everything. And over time, I found working in newsrooms and sort of following my own sort of sense of what a story is that I've become interested in topics that relate to women. 
And I've always sort of brought a feminist lens to my work, but I also, you know, I would report about things that I was afraid of. I didn't understand abortion or abortion law or politics. So I started reporting about that topic to understand it better. I worked, you know, in health television and I wanted to understand more about women's bodies. I mean, I realized personally that when I went to become pregnant, I didn't know you could only become pregnant a few days a month. I thought you could kind of become pregnant at any time. And so I was really, you know, wanting to understand more. And when I started to look at birth, I mean, first I started to look at birth when I began to have children myself. I have three kids and this was about, you know, eight years ago, but, you know, I began to kind of report it out, like as if it were a a story that I was reporting as a journalist. I wanted to understand not just what was sort of being offered to me about childbirth, you know, what do you put in the hospital bag? Like, which stroller do you need to buy? Which tests do you need to take when you're pregnant? I wanted to know what it felt like in the body to have a contraction, to push, to sort of what were, what were sort of the mechanisms that were happening inside. And so that sort of led me to, you know, to ask people about their birth stories. That's really where it started for me. I wanted to know the stories. I wanted to know what it felt like and what was possible. And so I did that sort of informally for about a decade, but I decided at the outset of writing birth control that I would do a formal survey. So I did an original survey of 1300 women and people who've given birth about their experiences. And I sort of used that as a guidepost when I started writing the book and interviewing experts and digging into the research and the science to kind of guide me toward what needed to be written about here. And what do you find from these people? What did you discover? I mean, what I have reported in the book based on all of my research is that birth in America is broken and it's broken for a number of reasons. But what we know is that the way birth happens in the hospital between 98 and 99% of all birth occurs in the hospital um, in the managed care model, which means that many births are taken care of by few people. And birth is an individual experience. There are certain things that the laboring body needs, like darkness and quiet and a feeling of safety and, you know, like confidence and like minimal interruption and all of these things. I mean, the hospitals are designed to take these things away and not provide them. Bright lights in your face, strangers barging in, tests and probes and all of this, all of the things that happen in a hospital birth from the second that you walk in the door, that pelvic exam to the electronic fetal monitoring and Pitocin sort of speeding up contractions to C-section. I mean, it's not based in evidence, but it's being done done to everyone. And so we have to question the model. The birthing person, the woman is not being centered in her care and that has to change. And that sort of idea came about through my research and all the science I dug into and all of my interviews. And, you know, it's not really sort of framed that way. And I want us to sort of shift and move into reframing it because everyone's experience matters, but also because we are in the middle of a national crisis, a maternal mortality crisis. People are dying from pregnancy and childbirth. 80% of these deaths are, are preventable. And we are not looking closely at the actual building blocks of the care and saying, is this care right, good, safe. We know that it's rooted in patriarchy and in white supremacy. And here's how birth used to be attended 
by midwives in this country, indigenous and black women who sort of brought women together. It was, it was a sacrament. It was a tradition. It was a beautiful practice. We witnessed birth, all of us. I mean, today, the only, the first experience of birth you have is your own. You're lucky if you ever see anyone else's birth, that just hardly ever happens unless you work in the field. But it used to be just a communal event, a way we connected, but men went to Europe to become doctors. They came back to America to set up their practices. And they realized that the care that people needed was childbirth. And so they learned from midwives. And then eventually they took birthing people away from midwives and said, we have tools and we have drugs and we have training. We have all of these things that we're going to offer to birthing people and we're going to make it safer and we're going to make it better. And we're going to build hospitals. And we're going to put you there. We're going to take you away from your family and where you're safe. And we're going to put you in a managed care system. And that really is sort of the, the roots of where we are today. We see the fingerprints of that care in the managed care system today. And it, it really does put the women and the birthing people at a disadvantage. So one of the biggest pushbacks I get, and you know, I try hard not to villainize providers and doctors and nurses. And I try to hold space that they are individuals that have been taught a certain way and work within a broken system. However, I also recognize fully and try and hold people accountable to the fact that you have an obligation that even if you work within a broken system to practice in an ethical way, whatever it may be. One of my biggest pushbacks that I get all the time is saying that it's not insidious. It's not on purpose. It's not intentional that women are harmed in the system. And insidious is part of the title of your book. So tell us how you got there. There is, there's an essence of intention in this. And I want to dive into it just so that people can understand that sometimes it actually is insidious. It's a really beautiful question. I'm with you. People who work in healthcare are heroes. They get into this work because they want to change lives. I mean, yeah. heroic, magical work is happening in hospitals. Miracles. Like this is, I mean, this is sort of what the, the peak of what we could imagine healthcare to be would be that. But we know from the evidence that that's not what's happening, that what's happening is insidious because the care that's being provided is rooted in tradition and it's not rooted in evidence. If the care was rooted in evidence and if it centered the people doing it, then we would not have a maternal mortality problem. We would not have 45% of people giving birth describing their birth as traumatic. It would be a completely different system. It's insidious because the healthcare system, I'm not blaming individual providers. It's a system that is giving a certain kind of care and they they should know better because the research supports a different kind of care care in the midwifery model that centers the birthing person as the expert we have the law of informed consent and refusal it's the law that means that when you enter a healthcare setting whether or not you're a pregnant person you have the right to decide what kind of care you get what happens to your body and your provider is required to explain to you your options and to equalize your opportunity to say yes or to say no. And we know that that's not happening. Informed consent and refusal, a lawyer that I interviewed for the book told me it's the law, but in it, 
in obstetrics, culturally, it does not apply. This is not happening. People are being coerced into care. Medical battery is something that happens when you are coerced into care. There are really good studies that show episiotomy, which means the, the cut and the perineum to widen the, the exit for the, the baby that's done. You know, more than half of people are not consenting to getting an episiotomy who are getting one in this country right now. It's incredibly difficult to find numbers and to find statistics about the use of episiotomy. Um, we know from a healthcare watchdog called the LeapFrog Group that some hospitals, you know, 40% of births are episiotomies. And we also know from some of the best studies about them that they're almost never called for. I mean, one researcher said that um, to move toward a more humane childbirth would be to eliminate episiotomy from childbirth entirely. They really are damaging. They make it really difficult for people to recover. They create all kinds of problems. But, you know, for generations, women in my family got episiotomies because their doctors told them, this is what we need to do to you to get your baby out. It's so pervasive and it sounds so scary when we talk about it like this, but the truth is this is what's happening inside of the hospitals. And I think that that's why, you know, it's a fine line that I try and tow, but a lot of doulas and, and natural childbirth educators and, and people that are in that more crunchy birth realm can get a bad rap because we've seen these things happen. We have witnessed these tragedies go on. We have seen the care without consent that caused trauma. So talk us through a little bit about what did you find in terms of birth trauma and how this insidiousness impacts women and their experience and maybe even their future fertility? Are these people deciding not to have future babies because their experiences were so horrific the first time? Trauma is a common experience in childbirth, but it doesn't have to be. That doesn't mean we don't want to validate people who have experienced that. It's a word that I've used to describe moments of my own childbirths. I had a precipitous labor for my first child, and it was it was traumatic because it was fast, and I didn't know what to expect, and I did have that association. There's also people who have post-traumatic stress disorder from childbirth, who experience childbirth as that level of trauma as something diagnosable that requires, you know, a certain approach to treat. And of course, those are going undiagnosed. Those are being missed. You know, PTSD is being misdiagnosed as postpartum depression and anxiety. But what we know that I find incredibly hopeful about birth trauma is that some of the best research about birth trauma done by Cheryl Beck, who's a nurse and sort of has been doing this work for decades, talking to women about their experiences, Birth trauma isn't intrinsic to a highly medicalized experience or a natural experience. People are more likely to experience birth trauma when they're left in the dark, when their providers are not working collaboratively with them, explaining to them what is happening to their body, what is going on. When people know what's happening every step of the way, they're much less likely to have birth trauma. And when providers do keep you in the dark and don't tell you what's going on, you're much more likely to have birth trauma. And so the setting doesn't necessarily matter, like what's happening, whether it's a C-section or, you know, a natural vaginal birth with no intervention, it doesn't matter. It's about, it's about how you're being cared for, how you're being spoken to. Are you considered the expert in the room and in your own body? And I think, you know, it's really easy to talk about birth in this system in terms of victimization. And I do think that scares people. And I get that fear is a huge component of this conversation that we're having, but birth is intrinsically 
the most powerful thing I could possibly imagine. It's creating a life inside you, giving birth to that life. I mean, that is that is sacred, that is transcendent. There's just nothing more powerful than that. But then it also makes you think like the fact that we're doing something so powerful that there would be an effort to sort of control this power is, is an interesting, is an interesting way to think about it. And why do you think that happens? What do you think the motivation is? I think a lot of times people find on my social media that I recognize money finances are usually involved somewhere somewhere money is being exchanged and usually very large sums so what would you find what do you think is this motivation for being able to control kind of women and, and women's health and fertility and birth Maternity care is some of the most expensive health care that's happening in our country. C-sections are one of the most common surgeries and the most costly. More than a million of them are done per year, roughly a third of all births. And the, the profit incentives in hospitals are tremendous. So that's everything from you show up at the hospital and you're in labor and the hospital is full and there's no labor and delivery room for you. Why can't they just put you somewhere else, right? They can't put you somewhere else because... The hospital labor and delivery suites can convert to surgical suites, which means whether or not you need surgical birth, you are in a room where that could happen. And so your insurance provider, if you have private insurance, is billed at a higher cost for that room. So C-sections, you know, some reports have found in hospitals can range from $6,000 to $60,000. That's an incredibly costly procedure. Pitocin administration, electronic fetal monitoring, NICU admissions, all of these are tens of thousands of dollars. And this is all for you know, a physiologic process in the body. People who are going into hospitals to have babies are not sick are not injured. The most, for the most part, this is a process that needs supportive care, not costly meddling intervention. And the other big piece of this sort of the like umbrella, I would say, is that the cost incentives aren't just for these individual procedures. They exist and, and hospitals make money when they move people through quickly. So that means moving everybody down this assembly line as quickly as possible, which is what pelvic exams, electronic fetal monitoring, Pitocin, all of these efforts, all of these interventions don't just control birth, they move it along. Right. So, you know, the top two causes of C-sections are electronic fetal monitoring, which we know isn't supported by evidence and failure to progress, which is you're taking too long, essentially. Right. That's sort of like the, the tagline. You're taking too long. It's dinner time. Like, I got to get home now. We're going to cut you open. And so all of this effort to make birth fit on a timeline isn't about birth at all. It's completely about profit. Wow. That is like the epitome of profit over people. That is the epitome of the opposite of do no harm. The irony there is not missed on me. Yeah. I mean, we're doing so much harm, but, and we know better. I mean, that's what gets me. It's like, we know better. All the research evidence is there to support what people actually need. And it's not only during birth, right? It's in the postpartum period where there's just like a tremendous deficit of care. You as a woman go from being surveilled to completely ignored practically overnight. And you know, insurance doesn't pay for, it pays for one or Medicaid for one postpartum visit. 
six weeks later after you've given birth. So much can go wrong in that time, right? You need mental health care and screening and attention. We don't have paid leave or subsidized childcare. You know, you need to be screened for pelvic floor disorders, for abdominal separation, for issues in the body that are functional. And what we know from the research is that the mother and the baby should be considered a dyad. They should be cared for together. And that's that's not happening. In the system, it's incredibly harmful when the care that people need is known, but not, not given to them. Well, it really shows you where their priority is. It's in preparing you for the birth, but not preparing you for a birth that is, you know, good and, and based in your preferences and honoring your goals. It is preparing you for the birth that they want you to have in the model of care that they are good at and, and make money on. And they have learned how to monetize birth. And you can just see how that plays out. The The birth is the payout. We do all this work to get to the payout and then you're dropped like a sack of potatoes and told to come back six weeks later. And, you know, not only it, yeah. Yikes. I, this is just a rabbit hole. I think this is a harrowing conversation for a lot of people. So answer, answer this for me, because if the C-section is such a common surgery, I think a lot of people think about the medical system as the more specialized it is, the higher cost it is going to be. So why, if we're doing so many C-sections, do they cost so much? Is this an artificially inflated payment happening between insurance and hospital systems that ultimately is going to land back in the in the hands of probably that patient to pay the remainder of that bill? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I look at it as like, what is the solution here? And that's that, you know, insurance companies actually don't want to pay all of these high costs for all of these C-sections. They're fine with paying the cost for C-sections when they're needed. And often hospitals can present a case that they are. But I reported on one hospital, its insurance company approached the hospital and said, you have to lower your C-section rate because it's too high. We're paying for too many C-sections. We're not going to pay for these anymore. And this was a hospital that was part of a wonderful program aimed at reducing C-sections. They had tried all kinds of things to make C-sections lower. They had looked at the research and sort of given, they were giving women more time to labor because they realized that the failure to progress myth was really encouraging them to intervene before they really could have. They were intervening in labors before people were actually in active labor and cutting people open. They were doing all kinds of things. They were centering the person, but they still could not get that rate down. And the insurance company said, you have to do something. You have to do something else. And so I thought that that was a fascinating like anecdote about this. Like we could be looking at it in a different way, which is sort of taking the incentives and putting them elsewhere, incentivizing, instead of incentivizing costly surgery, we could sort of disincentivize costly surgery and say, let's not pay for this anymore. We can't, we don't want, we don't want to pay for this anymore. Yeah. You know, I've long had the idea that if insurance is, you know, truly we're into kind of protecting birth and birthing people and, and whatnot, keeping moms and babies safe, that they would evaluate each hospital's population that they serve. And then they would give them a rate of C-sections that they were allotted essentially. And for every C-section that they fell below that, so meaning they did better than the rate that the insurance assigned them, they got a payout. And for every 
surgery that they did above that number, they just had to eat the cost on that. And it has just been such a, I don't know, I think it's like a fantasy, like, will that ever happen? So it's really cool to see um, hospitals and insurances having this discussion, because I think a lot of people, there's a lot of hate out there for insurance companies right now. And I think a lot of people think that, you know, insurance companies and hospitals are in cahoots. So it's nice to know that the insurance companies are approaching hospitals to say, look, you've got some really concerning numbers and we want to talk about it because this is just not safe for people. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, money is incredibly important in this conversation. And so yeah. that has to be addressed. I mean, what you described as a, as a potential model is really interesting. You know, I think people say like the, the counter argument here is like, well, people need, like people need C-sections or women will say to me, people who have given birth will say to me, I needed this procedure because they told me my baby was at risk. And like, if a healthcare provider says to me, says to you, says to any of us, like, hey, like your baby's life is at risk. What are you going to do? I'm going to do exactly what that person is telling me because they're telling me that something is wrong and they can help me. And I'm going to get that C-section. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so I understand those decisions and those women who've had those experiences, but I also, and I validate them. I also, you know, it was such a, an eye-opening conversation to me to have with Neil Shaw, who's an obstetrician and he's fantastic and has been part of this movement to reduce C-sections. And he said, you know what, like the, the thing about, cause I asked him, I said, you know, people tell me like the cord, you know, the cord was circling their baby's neck. The baby needed to come out with a C-section because of this cord, the baby needed to come out for this reason or that reason. And he said, you know what, like we, we remove cords from necks and vaginal births all the time. Like if I do a C-section and that baby comes out and that baby is like blue and lackluster, like I did the right thing because I saved that baby. And if I do a C-section and that baby comes out and it looks perfect, like good job on me, that baby, like I did a C-section and that baby looks great because of me. Either way, he says like, it's good to be me. And that, that really, that sort of sums it up, right? Like we can't really know the care that we need in this system because, and by the way, you know, the first thing obstetricians learn how to do is C-sections. So that's what they know how to do. Like they don't know how to support physiologic labor. And at the same time, if every single woman or, or birthing person in this country wanted midwifery care for their birth, they could not have it. There are not enough midwives. There's not enough care to support people in this way. So there's just, there's so much change that needs to happen, but I have so much hope because of what a transcendent, fabulous, incredible experience birth is. And also that we're having this conversation, that we're doing this storytelling, that there are people like you educating around this, that we are sort of, and we could talk about education too. I mean, just that we're beginning to have the education to make the decisions for us and for our bodies. And I, people ask me all the time, like, what should I look for in a provider? Like, how do I pick, how do I pick somebody who I trust, who isn't going to like deceive me and try to get me to do something that I don't want to do. And it's, you know, it's tricky, but I mean, some of it is in your gut, right? It's a feeling you have with a person. The very first provider I ever went to when I was pregnant was a midwife and she took my blood and she was rough and she didn't want to answer my questions. And that was the first and the last appointment I had with her. I went to someone else. And I think you need to trust yourself. People need to understand that they know a lot when they have an interaction with another human being, but knowing C-section rates, knowing episiotomy rates, knowing the rates of both the doctor and the hospital are really important, right? When you're nodding, when like, 
picking a provider because those will tell you your likelihood of having that procedure. And you need to know that. You need to know, am I going to a provider who gives everyone an episiotomy? Am I going to a provider who gives everyone a C-section? And it's important that whoever you choose, a midwife or an obstetrician, that or whomever else, that that person respects your needs, is listening to what you want, and is open to your questions, isn't rejecting you having a questioning dialogue with them about everything. Yeah, it's a conversation. You know, consent especially is a conversation, but then ultimately it is that mom's job to make the decision for them and their baby. It's that patient's, you know, choice, whether they take the doctor's recommendation, decline it altogether, or choose an alternative. And it has to be a conversation. So I do want to dive into the education because I think that, you know, it's a double-edged sword for me. Unfortunately, the onus falls on the patient. Do I think that's fair or right? I don't. I really don't. I think you should be able to enter the hospital system and know full and good in your heart that everyone there is practicing evidence-based medicine. They have your best interests at heart. They are not going to take advantage of you. They are not going to put their child's five o'clock soccer game on top of your birth, you know, or prioritize it over your choices or your goals. They won't put into that disjointed care that we have. Unfortunately, that's not the case. We have not reached that yet. So we really do have to advocate for ourselves. Two things that you've brought up that have really kind of stuck out with me is first understanding that your obstetrician is a surgeon. They're very different than midwives. You're going to get an entirely different experience and type of care. The model of care is different. The second thing is failure to progress. The number of people who falsely believe, and this is not to invalidate your experience, but it is to say there may have been another option, but falsely believe that they needed a C-section because they were in fact you know, being cared for by providers similar to the one that you described in that hospital that had an astronomical C-section, right? They were having a C-section when they didn't even meet the criteria, right? Your waters weren't broken. You were in active labor. You didn't meet the the hours amount that, that we want to see. There is a criteria list and there are so many, like thousands and thousands and thousands of women out there that have had unnecessary C-sections and they did not meet the requirements to be diagnosed with failure to progress, but they didn't know the difference and their provider, either intentionally or not, led them down the path of this, you know, false diagnosis. What is your advice? What would you say to somebody who is asking the question, you know, should I take childbirth education and where should I seek it out? And how do I ensure that I'm getting evidence-based childbirth education? Well, a couple things. Our, you know, our country fails miserably in education in many ways. The fact that we have public school, like that's a tremendous resource. We are so like lucky to have that. But sex education starts young. It should start very young. It's not one conversation. Like I talk to my children about childbirth now. I normalize it. I had a home birth. Two of my kids were already born. They were already here. There was a chance they were going to be there. So we had really frank conversations about what happens during childbirth, what it might look like, what mommy might be doing, how I might sound or move my body. My two and four-year-old had a pretty good sense of what labor looked like. Unlike a lot of obstetricians today, they didn't Mm. know what was a natural thing. And I realized, and I write about this in the book that like, like my noises, the noises I was making in my body and how I was moving, like I'm like in labor is natural, is normal, but is scary to people who don't understand what's happening. 
right? It's scary to people who aren't seeing physiologic labor and understanding what it is on a daily basis. So I would just say this education has to start really, really very, very young and be a continuous conversation. I talked to three uh, 10-year-old girls in my book about their experiences getting sex education in Brooklyn, New York, which is a very progressive place. And I was imagining like, they must be getting like so much better education around these topics than, than I did as a kid growing up in Georgia with like abstinence only education. And no, I came to find out that they learned that during puberty, both girls and boys will have stuff that comes out. Boys, it will be, you know, it'll be sperm and it'll feel good and it'll be pleasurable and it's exciting and it'll relieve stress. And for girls, it's going to be blood and it's going to be messy and it's going to be, you know, something that we have to clean up and hide. And they didn't really learn about female pleasure and they didn't learn about all of this. And I was pregnant while I was interviewing them. They were sort of like looking at me like, what, you know, what's, what is this? And, 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 and as I mentioned earlier, like I didn't even know before becoming pregnant that it was only a few days a month that I could become pregnant. And that was the case for a lot of my survey respondents too. They didn't realize that there was just, there was a fertility window. And so, you know, we have to do this education so very young. There are, I can't, I mean, I really, it's, it's amazing how many incredible birth education resources exist right now that, I mean, especially that didn't exist when I started doing this, like what you're building, you know, obviously evidence-based birth is fantastic. There are resources in my book that I use. There are so many fantastic resources. I love the Bradley method is actually what my husband and I used. It was the method of husband coach childbirth. They've updated their language to partner coach childbirth, but we spent eight weeks, like three hours each class with two other couples thinking about discussing childbirth. And that was actually like the first, just that amount of time devoted to the topic preparing. Listen, no matter who you are, if you are pregnant and giving birth, what you want needs to be centered and honored. It doesn't matter how much education you have. That's not like the sort of the, you don't need to have that. To, to, to have your wishes and desires and needs honored. But I will say Bradley was incredible because it was the first time I learned that I needed to be on defense in the hospital. You know, like my instructor kind of questioned my decision to give birth there. And I, I was so surprised. I couldn't believe like I'm going to this place. I chose these people. I chose this place. I'm going there to be like taken care of, right? And, and, and we everything we learned was about how to avoid what they were offering. And that was important. And you know what else was important? Practicing relaxing, practicing the feeling of a contraction, propping my limbs up on pillows. And like, this is a thing you can do when you don't have any children yet. Like not a thing I could do when I already had kids. But back when I didn't have children, I was able to do that kind of preparation. And it was so important. So I would recommend that people, no matter what sort of version of birth education they want to seek out, if you're pregnant and looking for birth education, I would just recommend devoting a good amount of time to learning about birth and what happens in the body when it goes into labor. Yeah. It teaches you what's normal and what's not normal. And that is going to give you the confidence of being able to truly stay true to what you want versus succumbing to fear-based, maybe not evidence-based recommendations or, you know, fears of the people around you. So you had talked about 
obstetricians not seeing a lot of unmedicated deliveries. And I sometimes talk about this on the internet and boy, the OBGY influencers come out like crazy and they defend themselves saying, you know, I couldn't possibly be an OBGYN if I had never seen unmedicated labor. And I'm not saying that you've never seen one. I'm saying that's not your specialty. And that's always what I tell them. Let's dive into that a little bit. What did you find through your research about this idea that the medical community wants to manage birth because they believe it is this like flawed, always on the verge of an emergency type of situation. We're always trying to jump and predict and and prevent and, and make sure things don't go wrong. And this often leads us to intervening just way too much. And then we cause trouble. And that's called iatrogenic trauma, right? Talk us through what did you find through your research in terms of like obstetricians just not being comfortable with maybe the goals that their patients have? Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is the cascade of interventions, right? And at this level, that's that's managed care. Managed care is like, we're going to use some data. We're going to try to like do this for as many people as possible at one time with very few of us, with just this little team. And that's the kind of care that you can provide at scale. We know that birth does not adhere to a clock, is not something that benefits from care given at scale. It requires individual attention and individual care. But the roots of this kind of care and the idea in our society and in our culture that the this model is supreme, it, it comes from a lot of places. But one place that I found in my research that I was so interested to find it coming from was anthropology. Um, I came across this idea called the obstetrical dilemma, which um, has its roots in sort of mid-century anthropology. And it's this idea that the, the female pelvis is inherently flawed. The birthing pelvis, you know, it, it can expand a certain amount, but the head of the baby to get through that space, that pelvis is so flawed that it needs assistance. It really can't do it on its own. That's sort of the idea. Lots of researchers have looked at this, have looked at gait, have looked at the movements sort of of bones, have looked at like muscles and tissues and hormones. And there are all these factors that contribute to a baby moving through a pelvis during childbirth, but anthropology just looks at bones. And so when they, when those white men anthropologists just looked at those bones in the 1950s, they created this idea. And there's an anthropologist named Holly Dunsworth, who I spent a good deal of time with, and I write about her work in my book. And she's like systematically trying to undo this idea because it is, it's foundational to why we do C-sections. It's foundational to how we approach the female pelvis and birth. It's all wrapped up in this idea that like, you can build a baby that's too big for your body to birth it, right? Like we hear stories all the time and we see in the research that women are often told by their doctors, you know, you have, your baby's going to be 10 pounds. You know, they're told that at 39 weeks. And we know from the evidence that nobody knows how, how big your baby's going to be at that time. The best window to understand the size of the baby through ultrasound technology is about 11 to 14 weeks. We have some sense of the size of the baby then, the evidence says, but there's really no good evidence that we know how big that baby's going to be at the end of your pregnancy. So when people, when doctors are coming in and saying, you know what, you're going to have an 11 pound baby. Let's just do the C-section. You're going to have a 10 pound baby. Like they have no idea is the truth. And so we need to understand the obstetrical dilemma and how it became pervasive and why it isn't based in evidence to give better care and to not intervene with people who, who need to be left alone. Wow. This just, 
I'm just like mind blown. It just, yikes. I don't know how it makes me feel. It makes me feel jazzed up because we have a lot of growth to do and, and there's a lot of room for improvement and it really can be an empowering experience for women. But on the same token, it can also feel kind of overwhelming because there is a lot of work to do and there is a lot of trauma and abuse to stop and also navigate what we've already caused and make sure that we're constantly reevaluating to make sure that we're not causing the same trauma in the future. So for people who are out there kind of pregnant and planning their labors, where are their biggest kind of power dynamics? Where are the top places where they should be aware of their own power and the impact that that particular situation or theme or decision may impact their labor or birth experience? I like to think about what the journalist and tech founder Kim Seals Allers says, which is that your birth plan is only as good as your care team or the people who you surround yourself with. So this idea that, you know, I'm going to write a birth plan, it's going to be abided, like that's what's going to happen. You know, you have to be with providers who are willing to support what you've stated that you need. That is sort of like a, at a baseline. I'm so encouraged by storytelling and, and people who are pregnant have different appetites for this, right? Everyone's sort of in a different place. But what I've seen in going around and talking about this book, talking about birth control is that people want to share their birth stories. They want to talk about it. And I've been in rooms where people are sort of unpacking the traumatic experiences they've had in their births in front of me for the first time, sort of coming around to like, oh, I thought it was fine. But actually, like now that I think about it, I was really coerced into this procedure or I wasn't, you know, and that happened to me too. I write about my own experiences in the book with, you know, having like natural vaginal birth, but definitely having experiences of being coerced and of things happening to me that I didn't actively consent to. And that's, I mean, that's really powerful. And we have to be really, you know, careful with all of this. But I also think it's so important to hear birth stories because we don't know what's possible unless we hear about what other people experience. We aren't getting this education and this information from our providers. We aren't getting it in school. We aren't getting it as children in sex education. And so we have to make talking about birth normal. We have to invite it. I mean, that was another thing that my survey found. People are not asked to share their birth stories, hardly ever. And they they want to be. People in my survey who described, I gave sort of a list of adjectives on one question to describe your childbirth. You could pick as many or as few as you wanted. And there was a set of people who only chose traumatic. That was the one adjective they picked. And so we sort of dug down with the researchers at the new school that I worked with to look at sort of more similarities between that group. But they did share their stories and they wanted to share their stories if they could help other people. That was like a through line throughout the survey. I want to share about what I went through if it can help someone else. And that to me, just like, I mean, that speaks to the power of women. That speaks to the power of people giving birth to support and help each other. And so, you know, 
there's so much more available to people giving birth today than even a decade ago. And I think like if you're motivated to kind of do the work and find it and figure out for yourself what you want to need, then you can have it. That's amazing. Oh my goodness. Okay. So if someone wanted to read your book, where would they find a copy of that? So Birth Control, The Insidious Power of Men Over Motherhood is available now. You can get it wherever books are sold. Your local bookstore has it. Amazon has it. Anywhere. Nice. I love that. Allie, this has been fantastic. I think it's an ugly truth that you know, there's no way around it. There's only a way through it. We have to go through this. We have to have these conversations. We have to start setting boundaries. We have to do the education. We have to find and use our voice. We have to share our stories. We have to encourage other people to stand up for themselves as well in order to better the birthing community for everybody, for for truly the, the practitioners, the partners, the birthing person, the babies, our medical teams, for the energy of us collectively as humans, for moms and babies bonding. I think that if we could, and I've said this for a very long time, but if we can figure out birth, we will be able to fix so many of our nation's problems organically. They will just kind of fall into a better rhythm uh, because it all starts with birth. It all starts with how you bring your baby into the world and how you're treated in those moments. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think we also, we get to go through this. We get to feel this power. We get to do this fantastic thing, truly. And the way, yes, I really believe that if everyone left their birth experience feeling empowered, like I did, I felt like my home birth was incredibly empowering. And I want that for everybody. I want everyone to feel that power. Yeah. And if we did, if we all did, if we all sort of went through this and felt that kind of power, just imagine what that would unleash, right? Like you're saying. Oh my gosh. It would just, we would not even recognize our nation. I mean, I think our mental health would improve and depression would go down and PTSD would go down and baby mom bonding would be way, way up. I think marital issues would go way, way down. I think communication would go way, way up. I just think it would be a beautiful catalyst for us if we could fix birth in America. So I am super honored to be standing beside you as we champion this topic and making sure that people understand they have rights and you can say no um, and you can, you know, be in control of your birth experience and you can be kind of that driver in the driver's seat, the decision maker. So Allie, thank you so much for being here with me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Yes. Thank you. All right, everybody. I will see you next week on another episode of the Birth Lounge podcast. Until then, head over to Instagram and find Allie and I. Bye. Hey, before you go, I wanted to let you know that the doors to the Birth Lounge are officially open. You can join the Birth Lounge at thebirthlounge.com to find the best childbirth education on the internet. It is comprehensive care. There is no agenda. I'm truly stepping you through any birth plan that you want to make, whatever feels good to you, because my goal is not to help you have one type of birth over the other. Instead, I want to help you 
have a birth free of birth trauma because I know that that sets you up for a lifetime of success. So much birth trauma is avoidable and it can actually be avoided in your labor if you do specific things or if you avoid certain things. I want to teach you what those certain things are. We know that you cannot plan out how your birth is going to go, but you absolutely can be prepared. And that means being prepared for anything that comes your way. So inside the birth lounge, I am going to teach you unmedicated childbirth coping mechanisms, but I'm also going to talk to you about medicinal options. I also want you to understand what normal physiological labor looks like so that you know what's normal, but I also want you to understand what's abnormal. So I'm going to teach you the common complications that sometimes pop up or the roadblocks or pivots that people encounter during the birth process. I also am going to teach your partner everything that they need to know to be helpful during labor. And I mean actually be helpful, not just sit on the couch and say, you're doing a great job, babe. I'm going to teach them pain relief strategies, how to advocate for your goals, how to offer you options, and how to truly take care of you in labor so that, again, you can avoid birth trauma. Join the birth lounge at thebirthlounge.com to have an informed labor where you feel confident navigating hospital policy and advocating for your goals. Again, that is thebirthlounge.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.